listener production. A warning, this episode contains reference to sexual abuse against children and discussion about forced adoption. I mean, the whole drive, I remember my wife is sort of, she's looking at me the whole way, like making sure, are you nervous, you're nervous, and this is going on, and yeah, of course I was, but I'm not sort of, you know, not built that way, I'm still a, you know, a man born in the 70s, yeah. <laughs> still not giving away too much. When we finally met up, and we sort of met down on the park bench at Burley Beach of all places, like, I mean, where do you, where do you go? We're looking for a park, as you do. Burley on a Saturday is not easy. And she said, I've seen her, I've seen her. In my wife's view, she looked, you know, we, we look, have similar features, etc. tall, what have you. And then we approach on foot. And both, look, I'm quite tall, as you can tell. I'm two metres tall and my butt, she's about, she's easy, six foot tall. And so you're sort of 20, 30, 40 metres away and you can see your mum approaching on foot. It's, it's totally out of body experience. I'm Amelia Robahart and this is Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. I have been moved by the stories that have been sent to us over the last few weeks. Starting out this series, I did have some idea of how many people had been affected by the policies of the forced adoption era. But hearing from so many of you really emphasised the enormity of the impact. In this bonus episode, I wanted to share three stories from people who contacted us. I think they provide a different perspective to the adoption experience that you've heard so far. Yeah, just Edward, adopted person, male, 47. This is Edward, and Edward's a pseudonym, chosen to protect the identity of his family. Tell me a little bit about your childhood, Edward. I was always aware that I was adopted at the earliest memory. No living memory of the actual first time it was said to me, but it was a reinforced concept, really like a lot was brought up again. You were chosen, you're special, she didn't want you, she couldn't have you, she wanted you to go to a better place. And that narrative was just repeated constantly from as early as I can remember, right through to my mid-teenage years. And looking back, it almost feels like that it was out of the book and they were told, you've got to bring this up every three months or something. Edward grew up in Tasmania, where he attended school and lived with his adoptive family, including two older sisters. He always felt he was treated differently. He refers to himself as being in the black sheep department. When he could, he moved up north to Brisbane. I met my now beautiful wife. We were both 21, 22. It was her sort of very gentle urging, if you like. I think this would be good for you to find out where you come from. And and on and off that had come up over the years. I mean, I was obviously finding ways to avoid going down the process, being a typical bloke. It was really only a stronger urging to do that, I think, post our son being born in 2009, and that's when that journey sort of started. After submitting the forms for his identifying information, Edward received a call. It was a case officer from the Tasmanian government reaching out to tell him they'd found his biological mother. 
your mum's name is, boom, and out it comes, which is quite an unreal, bizarre experience. So I'm, like, 42 at that stage. It's just a very, your head spinning on a plate kind of what's going on. It's bizarre. It really is. Following this conversation with his assigned case officer, Edward received a compilation of his records and he brought them with him into the studio. So that's me, original birth certificate. It's just basically the information for Edward will go by. And yeah, it just covers off basic birth information. You can clearly see it has my original birth certificate, which I was just referred to as baby, and we'll go for the benefit of the Edward was born in February of 1975. He shows me his particulars regarding child for adoption forms. It talks about Edward's weight, length, APGAR score, eight, doing well is the common. Mother, aged 18, single girl, enjoys reading and cooking. Father, 19, bachelor, bricklayer. So this is allegedly his background. Right, personality, as soon as he knew your pregnancy, he left, left. the state. Yeah. In these forms, Edward found out he wasn't immediately adopted. He remained in an orphanage for seven months. This was something that did happen. Babies would remain in the care of institutions for weeks, sometimes months, until a suitable placement with a married couple was eventually found. My wife, who is a, uh, a nurse, sort of went through the medical stuff and she became aware of it looks like you dropped weight significantly in the first sort of seven months of your life. Developmentally, you literally lost weight. About, clearly, as you can see, I've recovered, but, <laughs> but, but a clearly sort of dropped weight below the normal range, as in medically, a clearly sign of sort of trauma or stress on a body. You know, in anyone's context is losing weight. So it was an out-of-body experience reading those documents for the first time, and every time I look at them, it's still weird. Like, I've got kids, most people have kids, I know you've got kids. You really think, imagine your firstborn child parked in a crib on its own for seven and a half months. I mean, it's unfathomable that we'd actually do that as a society. It's crazy. A few more pages in is the adoption request. This is the request. That's my biological mum. That is my adoptive father's handwriting. I recognise that well. That's clearly him. But you can sort of see there's all the consent. This is the consent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not her handwriting at all. So this is she. This is the social worker. Mm. So I said, you will do this now. That's dot on 27th of Feb. I'm born on the 15th. Oh, wow. Reading through these documents, it looked to Edward like the consent form wasn't signed by his mum. Edward's adoption papers had left him with a lot more questions about his past. With the help of his caseworker, he received his mum's contact details. It would have been about 6.30 on a Saturday evening, and I think with the very gentle urging of my wife was basically, you know, go on, just do it. And remember picking up the phone with enormous trepidation because it's just a bizarre thing. You, you know, I'm 40, 42, 43 or whatever. I'm about to talk to my mum for the first time in my life. It's weird. Mm. I mean, it really is when you think about it. 
and I rang. Now, she did not have my number. It was not given to her. She had no contact details whatsoever. For whatever reason, I sort of blocked my number and just just come a private number. And she instantly answered with hello and... Your name? My name, (gasps) yeah. Sends shivers down the spine thinking about it now. It was out there, yeah. Wow. She knew contact had been made. A letter had arrived at her home in Tasmania. Her husband, who knew of the situation, thank God, because a lot don't, Mm. but he'd always known. A letter arrived from the government. He hadn't opened it. He said, there's a letter here with a fairly serious-looking envelope. And she said, I knew exactly what it was about. I knew it was about you. What did she say happened? What were the circumstances that surrounded the adoption? At that initial conversation, it was literally just, look, I was made to sign you over effectively. She was 18, she was pregnant. The whole family, her grandmother in particular, was very much ruling the roost of, this is what you will do. She talked about spending Christmas of 1975 locked in her room. She was very much a shameful secret hidden away from the family. Being wheeled into hospital, On the day in question, she'd held up, didn't see me. The next day, tried to do a runner, if you like, out of the recovery, her hospital bed, to try and sneak down the hallway to see me and was sort of physically tackled by a nurse and a doctor. And that was it. Edward also had a burning question for his mum. Was it her signature and, in fact, her handwriting on the file? because it looked to Edward to be the exact same writing and signature of the social worker who had witnessed the consents. I've now since talked to my biological mum. No, I did not fill out those forms. No, that is not my signature. Ostensibly 12 days after I was born, those legal documents were made, despite already having been forcibly removed. As was common practice around this time, there were some questionable and in some cases illegal, methods that were used to force mothers to give up their babies. After that initial phone call with his mum, they agreed to meet in person at Burley Beach on the Gold Coast. And when you finally got next to each other, what was it? What was your first movement? Oh, hello and have a hug. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? Yeah. And um, did she cry when she hugged you? She did, yeah, yeah. So it's very emotional and still sends shivers down my spine thinking it's it's weird. We sat down and she said, I suppose you want to know about your father. Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course I do. She said, well, there's no other way to describe this. It's just a thing called rape. Oh. And that's how it came up. That really sends you for a six. I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, we all, you know, biology come in the world the same way. But initially for probably... I would say the best part of a year, that was a lot to process. When it says that he abandoned her in those documents when she found out she was pregnant and left the state, is that true? That's completely made up, yeah. I think that story, as it were, has been probably put together because we have to have a nice little narrative, not an ugly narrative. And so that's a little bit confronting the fact that that story was the story I read. Had he had a narrative of he ran off and joined the Navy or whatever, you could have go, oh, yeah, fair enough. But to hear that from your biological mum's face, it's like, wow, that's a lot. 
for her, I think it's hard because she's had to live in that sort of private kind of, I hate to use the word shame because it's not her shame, but to be made to feel that way for that long, it was just like that didn't exist. It never happened. It's had a big, big impact on her, which is really sad. Since that early contact, Edward tried to keep in touch with his biological mother. The first year or two, we would converse and speak, but it just becomes a real effort after a while, and you just run out of stuff to talk about. It's like meeting someone at a party for five minutes, and then suddenly it's your new best friend, and you're going to keep on talking to them. Every, of course you're not going to do that. It's just not, not normal. It's odd, and it's difficult, but there's not much you can do about it. It does give you, as you learn all this stuff, a very awkward concept of family to get your head around. It's very challenging, because I often look at my wife's family. She comes from quite a large family. She's got three other siblings and tons of cousins and stuff. And I go, you guys really should be quite grateful for what you do have, because a lot of people would like to have this sort of, and said, people like me don't have that sort of, that connection. That sense of connection is something Edwards made sure to prioritise in his relationship with his own son. So I stick to him like glue. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably a byproduct of that. It's certainly shaped how that's evolved. You look back and you go, oh, yeah, that's probably how I am the way I am, to a degree, yeah. What happened to the mothers and adopted people? It still haunts me. Women coerced into giving away their children. Little babies screaming alone in a crib. This was all thought to be in the best interest of the child, all in the hope of growing up with married parents. But the next story you're going to hear shows that there was no guarantee life would be better with a married couple. I'm happy to go by a pseudonym, if you like. Actually, that's probably the best thing. Hopefully I don't slip up and name names. We can edit it, don't worry. <laughs> But yeah, maybe pseudonym's going to be safer. <laughs> I picked an angel card out this morning to help guide me and her name was Fiona, so let's just go with that. Can you tell me a little bit to start off with about your childhood? So I was born in December of 1966 in Devonport, Tasmania and adopted and raised in Hobart. I believe the adoption papers say from April the following year. I was adopted by a couple who were in their mid to late 20s and my adoptive mother had diabetes, which at the time wasn't very well controlled. And she died five years later at the age of 32 when I was five years old. What was your relationship like with your adoptive mother before she passed away? I think it was really happy. I have probably only five main memories of her and events that happened. I remember just before she died, she came home from hospital and I remember she had these holes in her hands and I'd asked what they were and they were obviously cannula drips and stuff like that. And then, yeah, she just wasn't there anymore. I remember lots of ambulance men in white coats taking her to hospital through the middle of the night sometimes. But she apparently died really quickly and she actually died of like kidney failure. It was a really sudden passing. Fiona always knew she was adopted. After her adoptive mother died, 
she recalls a traumatic childhood at the hands of her adoptive father. He ended up being a pedophile and began interfering with me from as young as what I, all I can remember from five up until when I finally had the courage to stand up to him. But when I was about seven, he remarried another lady. And I don't know whether she knew what was going on or not, but she really had a dislike for me. And so she was quite abusive with her words. I used to go off into a lot of imaginary worlds. And I used to think to myself, everything was so hard and so crappy. When I grow up, life's going to be really good (laughs) when I'm an adult. Fiona was eventually asked to leave the home after she stood up to her adoptive father. I left home the day after my 17th birthday. That was after I'd revealed the truth to the stepmom and the adoptive father and obviously was called a liar and told that my adoptive father was had always said all along that one day I'd come out and say this. I got home from my work job and... There was a suitcase waiting for me and a taxi was called and I had about 10 minutes to pack my suitcase. Jumped in the taxi and it was a really weird mix of emotions because obviously I was scared. I didn't really know where to go. I told him to go to the general post office or the GPO, which is in the city of Hobart. And I just wanted him to talk to me because I I was so emotional. I didn't want to start crying in the car, but that's all I felt like doing. But this taxi driver wasn't, he didn't even say hello. It was really horrible. Anyway, I got to the GPO and I called my boyfriend and he came and picked me up and he took me to my grandmother's house. When did you um, start your search for your mother and what did you eventually find? I had my first child when I was 26. And so all these sort of questions started to come up about family health history and just wanting to know who she was. So I went through a government agency. They um, contacted me and gave me my actual real birth certificate because I could never access my real birth certificate. And it had her name on it. So then um, I did some marriage searches through births, deaths and marriages and found she got married. Then I did a search through the electoral records and found where she was located in Devonport. And my husband at the time made a phone call to her. The story's quite funny. So apparently she she got off the phone and she went to her husband's work sobbing in a fit of tears and he thought something really tragic had happened. And when she told him about the phone call, he said, well, did you get their phone number to call them back? And she said, no, because she was just so freaked out. Fiona remembers meeting her mother after that phone call. It was quite the reunion. Her mother's husband was there, as well as what is now Fiona's aunt and uncle. They came down to Hobart to meet us and her and her husband came down with her sister and her husband. And they came into the house and I remember looking out the window (laughs) trying to go, which one is she? And so they came to the front door and I opened the front door and we all just introduced each other and hugged and cried. And I didn't know it at the time, but her husband took one look at me and turned around and walked outside crying. But I didn't notice that until I was told this after. 
So we had a really big night, a few scotches and lots of talking. The next day, Fiona and her family went to visit another relative. It was there she learnt the full story. My mum came in the car with me and her husband went in the car with the uncle and auntie. And she said to me, I hope you don't think any less of me or you judge me, but we actually think my husband is your father, not the man named on your birth certificate. I was pretty blown away by that. And as soon as we got out to the uncle's house, I got out of my car and her husband got out of the car in front, already knowing that she would have told me this. And we just ran to each other and just hugged and he just cried and cried and cried. So apparently the night before, when he walked out the room crying, he recognised and realised that I was actually his daughter. He's a really beautiful, emotional person and he always used to say to Mum, one day that baby will come back to you. We've been in each other's lives ever since. We spent the next three or four months on the phone for three hours every night. Our phone bills were through the roof because it was pre-mobile three or four hundred dollar phone bills. I just don't even know what we found to talk about. A lifetime, I suppose. For my birthday that year, I was turning 28 and so we all went up and mum had invited all the relatives to the house and it was like, welcome home. You know, I felt like I'd always belonged there. I'd always been there. Felt like I'd never left and they just welcomed me with open arms. It was absolutely incredible. It was just amazing. Did she ever tell you the circumstances of your adoption? She'd only just turned 17. And her mum had said to her, if you bring that baby home, you'll be out on the street. So she felt like she had no choice. And when she had me, she, she didn't even know whether she'd had a boy or a girl. One of the nurses had said to her, look at all the hair, and she got shushed up really quickly to, you know, that baby's been adopted out, don't say anything. But apparently my grandmother said to her, if you want to see the baby, I will come with you. But mum said she couldn't do that because she, she just knew that she couldn't go and see me and then walk away and leave me. So I don't hold anything against her for that. It was what it was at the time. I really believe that that was what was supposed to happen for my life. It turns out Fiona wasn't the only baby. Her mum had been pressured to adopt out. Five years ago, I think it was, mum came to me to tell me something really important and she revealed to me that there's another brother. And I was really gobsmacked anyway. Two years after she had me, she fell pregnant again and her mother said to her, well, this is a fine mess you've got yourself into and she just said, well, I'll get myself out of it. And she took herself away and had another baby and adopted that one out as well. There's a lot of shame that goes with the adoption stories. And I think she's felt guilty a lot of her life. So so anyway, we've met him. They have a lovely family in Queensland. We've met him a couple of times and his beautiful family. And yeah, we chat every now and again. So life now is pretty good. <laughs> which is really nice. 
Even though there was usually a process adoptive parents had to go through before adopting a child, it wasn't a catch-all. There are accounts of emotional, physical and sexual abuse among adoptive families. In Fiona's case, there was probably no way of anyone knowing about her abusive adoptive father. I guess it's the same as today's world, isn't it? You know, you never know what somebody's like until they're convicted. And so, you know, for all the protections that our Working with Vulnerable People cards provide, really, they don't provide any protection because unless you're a convicted, not fit and proper person, they're not really worth anything. So I guess in hindsight, nobody would have known his background. What has helped heal you over this process? I think I've been really blessed to have the right people come into my life at the right time. Having really good friends that supported me throughout my life has been a really good help. I think turning to spirituality a bit too really helps me. And just trying to be a good person that doesn't model the parenting that I also received. Like doing my best to do the best to protect my kids and be a good mum. What would you tell other people that have been through similar situations as you about finding your family and how you went about that? I think you've got to be really prepared to accept whatever outcome comes your way because it's not something that you can control. I've been really lucky, I think. You're heading into something that you can't control the outcome of. So I think you have to be really resilient and accepting of what's going to come. A lot of this podcast has been focused on the adoptees and the mothers that were impacted by the forced adoption era. We do know it affected so many more people, siblings, grandparents, and of course, the fathers. While making this series, we did reach out to a few fathers to see if they'd talk about their experience. However, for one reason or another, they didn't want to be interviewed. It's only in the last few weeks we had a father reach out. Well, um, we were squash buddies. We'd play squash together at DY Racket Sports, which is now no longer there. And uh, I was uh, one of the coaches for the juniors in that, in that place. That's how we met. This is Cameron. That's his real name. But we're going to call his partner Ellen. I started dating her after her 16th birthday. I was about 18. I think I'd just left school and she was in fifth form and now year 11. Her school was very close to the uh, beach where I was patrolling Surf Life Saver. We basically went everywhere together. We had our spot down at DY Beach that we used to go to, sitting on top of the boat shed. We were a typical Northern beaches dating teenagers. We had our own language, you know, one of those. It sounds kind of, it sounds so immature now <laughs> that I'm uh, quite a few years on. It was, you know, very fun, silly. She had the best sense of humour and I used to play a lot of practical jokes on her and she just to take them all and we just have such a laugh. We just kind of understood each other and really convinced that we'd found the person that we were going to spend the rest of our life with. Despite being young, 
they were serious about each other. It didn't seem like a big deal when they found out Ellen was pregnant in 1979. She was pregnant through the HSC and uh, would tell me stories about feeling flutters while she was doing the exams and things like that. While Cameron and Ellen were happily planning their future together, Ellen's father didn't take the news of the pregnancy well. You know, my relationship with her entire family was quite good up until that point. He came down quite often and played squash with us sometimes and uh, I used to have meals with them on the weekend. Once they found out that Ellen was pregnant, the roof caved in, basically. The father, we went absolutely ballistic. You know, he chased me around the house one day with a, with a knife in his hand. Ellen's family tried to stop Cameron from seeing her, but the young couple found a way to stay connected. They pretty much just locked her in her room between about December 1979 through to when our child was born in April, and I couldn't get to her. And so for that entire period, Ellen and I were just passing letters through this small ventilation window that was in her room. It was probably oh, a couple of feet square and it, was, it would only open about six inches. And so I'd go down there and we'd hold hands through the window and we'd pass letters to each other. And the communication was always that we would get married, that we all found each other's life partner, that we were, um, you know, we'll figure out a way of doing this one way or another. Did you ever discuss any options other than keeping the baby? We were forced to discuss that because in this time that she was isolated from me, her parents were getting the adoption agency around to uh, start to discuss this option of adoption. And we were sort of both agreeing that, okay, we'll play along with this while we're in this situation where we're separated and we can't get to each other and can't discuss it properly. You know, this was never a serious a serious option for us. What happened as the pregnancy continued on? What, as, as obviously she got more pregnant, was she kept home and like locked away? Or were you at all able to see her? There was one incident where, um, we, as I said, we were passing letters through the window and, and in one, one of those correspondence, she told me that she was going to be let out to go and see the adoption agency at one stage, which was in the city. They put her on the bus and she got off the bus as she went past near my place and I drove in with her into the city to see the adoption agency with her. We sat there and, you know, so went through this charade and I said to the adoption agent, look, how do I stop this? This is ridiculous. We aren't seriously considering this. We're sort of going through the motions. And I thought I was dealing with a professional that, you know, had a duty to... Um, you know, consider all sides anyway. And she kept saying to me, you have no rights, you as the father, you have no option. And if she can't decide, then her parents will decide, which was sort of like a bit of an eye roll to me. And it all seemed a bit strange. Cameron continued to visit Ellen while she was locked away by her family, right up until the day she gave birth. I turned up to her house one night about 11 o'clock to hold hands through the window and all the lights were on, but the car was, had left the, the garage and, you know, obviously something was going on, I figured it out. And the next morning, this friend who lived across the road 
rang me, told me what hospital Ellen was in, and I rang the hospital and tried to talk to her, and they said I couldn't talk to her. I asked if I could come and visit, and they said, well, who are you? I said, well, I'm the father of the child. I'm Ellen's boyfriend. And they said, oh, well, you're not family. You'll have to come at regular visiting times. Uh, and, and it's funny, these things just wash over you at the time, and you just go, oh, okay. But now I think about, I'm not family, you know. I don't know how much more family you can get than being the father of the baby that's sitting in their nursery. Cameron did see Ellen later that day. I went into the hospital, turned the corner and looked in the room and there's Ellen sitting on the bed with our child. It was basically the love of my life and, and our daughter. We had about five, ten minutes alone together and we discussed, again, discussed marriage. We discussed this little life that we had in front of us. And then her mother came in, then Ellen's mother came in and she went off like, like a poker machine that's just, you know, registered something terrible having happened. She just started yelling and screaming incoherent babble in a way and then saying, you shouldn't be here, you shouldn't be here and all this sort of thing. Uh, then the phone went off and it was someone's father on the other end and the mother was talking to the father and she's, uh, yes, 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 he knows. Yes, he's here right now, actually. And then this screaming is coming down the phone. So uh, when this screaming and all the rest of it happened, Ellen and I sort of came together over in one side of the room with our daughter. She was back in the bassinet by that stage. And we held each other and she said to me, Cam, I can do this, I can do this if you're going to be there with me. And I said, yeah, we'll do it somehow. Cameron remembers being able to see Ellen over the next couple of weeks while she was still in hospital and being pressured to adopt out their baby. I walked in at times when the consent taker was in there trying to get a signature out of her. And Ellen said to me on the first occasion, she's trying to get me to sign these things. And I looked at them and I, I could see they were consent papers for adoption. And I said, Ellen, this is an adoption consent. You know what you're signing? And she said, oh, no, it'll just give us an extra 30 days to make a decision. And on that occasion, I was able to talk her out. I said, well, no, you're not signing this. Anyway, at one time when I wasn't there, they somehow got her to sign. To this day, I don't know what they did, what they said to get her to sign. As soon as Ellen signed those papers, things moved quickly. The baby disappeared. We had no access to her. Ellen was locked in her room again for the next 30 days and then basically bang on the 30 days, her parents... I think they organised for her to get a job at the bank. Ellen's new job was around the corner from Cameron's house. She would visit him on her lunch break often. But eventually, Ellen's parents presented her with an ultimatum. This sort of thing went on for probably another few months and then one day I got a letter from her. And she said, I told mum and dad that I've still been seeing you. And they said to me I had to make a decision right there and then that moment to either leave the house or to give up my boyfriend. And I can still remember the words. She said, after all that's happened, I couldn't stand to live, lose my family as well. So this will have to be the end of it. 
Both Ellen and Cameron eventually married other people and had children of their own, though Cameron never stopped thinking about his firstborn daughter. By the time his daughter turned 18, the laws had changed, allowing parents to get information about their children that had been adopted. Cameron was determined to reunite with his daughter. On the day of her birthday in 1998, when she was 18, I had my nose pressed up to the glass door at uh, birth, deaths and marriages, waiting for it to open at 8 o'clock, went in, paid my beautiful couple of hundred dollars or whatever it was, and a couple of weeks later got her amended birth certificate, found out her name. Cameron did some further research, finding out more details of his daughter's adoptive family. He ended up speaking with a relative of hers, finding out she was a boarder at a school in Sydney, close to where Cameron was working at the time. And so I went and got a, uh, uh, the old book, Street Directories, you know, found it in the street directory, looked up from my window. She was like 400 metres away. Unfortunately, it was um, school holidays at the time. So I sent a letter to their house and uh, got this letter back. It was pretty strained, very, very difficult. Plenty of red lights for a father meeting a daughter for the first time. I think there was a fair bit of suspicion between us. It was was quite difficult and I met up with her for for a few times for coffee and whatever because I could just basically walk to the school, it was so close. And on one occasion as I was leaving, I said to her, I told her I loved her and uh, we're, what, 25 years down the track. To this day, they are the last words I've spoken to her. She just cut off all um, contact with me from that point. Aside from a phone call on Christmas Eve a few years later, Cameron hasn't spoken to his firstborn daughter since. He has two other kids now, and they know they have an older sister. When I had the reunion with my uh, first daughter, my son was eight and my second daughter was five. And so we had to sit them down and, you know, not exactly tell them the facts of life, but said, look, Dad's got something to tell you. And I sat on the coffee table because it was a special occasion and told them, you know, the story that I had a baby before. And my son immediately cried. So I was so sad, you know, that they did that. But my daughter went away. She she just shrugged and went back to her play, whatever she was doing. But about an hour later, she came into the kitchen and hugged my wife and said, they didn't even let him give the baby a name. To this day, even with everything that's happened, Cameron hasn't forgotten about his first daughter. I never stopped thinking about it, even now. And that's the other thing, this doesn't get better as you get older, it gets worse because you learn more and more about what you've had taken from you. If this episode has raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you've been affected by forced adoption practices, call 1800 21 03 13 to be connected with the Forced Adoption Support Service in your state or territory. 
Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family is created and hosted by me, Amelia Oberhart. Produced by Alistair Kirkby and Bonnie Lavelle. Fact-checking, Alistair Kirkby. Sound design and mix, Niall Fernandez. Executive producer is Ellen Leibeter. This is the final bonus episode for Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family. Thank you again for listening and for sharing your stories. There'll be another season coming soon. Subscribe and follow Secrets We Keep so you're the first to know.